And uh, here's, here's, the, here's the big picture for Acts 20 and 21 that we're going to be looking at this morning. It's this, that, that Paul is, he's finishing up his third missionary journey, and he has some last words that he wants to convey to these people who are so precious and dear to him. And uh, guys, last words are important words. Um, they reveal a person's heart. They, they show what's most important. Um, you know, before, before you die, you want to, they say that, that um, before a person dies, it, it reveals that, that completely unhindered truth that they just want to convey that is most important to them. And, uh, you know, some, some last words are funny, I'm sure. Uh, s- some words are, are really short, but all of them um, really reveal this, this desire to want to etch in people's hearts and minds a memorable truth in, the, in, in their hearers. Um, and that's this is something they want to leave a lasting impression about the meaning of life. And some of you may have experienced um, this, this before. You've heard some last words from people. And so here's some, here's some last words, just, just to kind of give you a, a couple laughs here maybe. So uh, here's, here's some last words from a few interesting people. Joseph Wright, he was a linguist who edited the English Dialect Dictionary. And his last word, dictionary. His last word was, I was like, how does that, like he's about to die. Dictionary. And then he, and then he dies. Um, seriously, that's his last word. I don't understand. Uh, but clearly that was important to him, the dictionary. Okay, here's another guy. He was a mathematician. His name was Thomas Fonte de Logne. I don't know if that's French or what. But on his deathbed, he was asked, <laughs> like he must have had some math buddies around him. Because the question they asked on his deathbed was, Thomas, what is the square of 12? And his last words before he died was 144. <laughs> he died. It's awesome. Okay, so, uh, so here's a couple more that might, might be, uh, you might be familiar with. John Wayne, uh, of, course, of course, a great, great guy on the screen. Uh, he died at the age of 72, and this was his last scene. Um, on his deathbed, he, he turned to his wife and he said, of course I know who you are. You're my girl. I love you. And then he passed away. Oh, that's sweet. Uh, one last one for you. Harriet Tubman, uh, she, she died in 1913, and as she was on her deathbed, she gathered her family around, and they sang together. And her last words were, swing low, sweet chariot. And, uh, and then she passed. So what would you say? You know, if you were to, if you were to stand before or, or lay down before people on your deathbed, what would be the words that you would want to communicate that's most important to you? Of all the things, of all the meaning of life, what is it that you would really want to say to those who are dear to you? This is a, this is a sobering thought, especially for a sunny day outside. But this is the context for a passage today. Um, the Apostle Paul, he's finishing his third missionary journey, and the Holy Spirit has revealed to him that he is, he is going to endure much affliction and trial uh, on his way to Jerusalem, and then after that, he's going to die. And he is not going to see uh, these precious people most likely ever again. So what is, what is Paul going to communicate? What are his last words? What does he want his people to hear? That's what brings us to Acts chapter 20. And so if you have your Bibles with you, or you can follow along on the screen, we're going to read a long passage of scripture. So buckle up and uh, dig in for the ride. Um, starting in verse 1, it says, After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said, Farewell 
and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus from Berea, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. And on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. Hopefully you guys won't have that experience this morning. Um, And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Hopefully you won't have that experience this morning either. Um, But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And then when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while more until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for, he, for so he had arranged, and intending himself to go by land. And when he had met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came, to the follow, came the following day opposite Chios. And the next day, we touched at Semos, and the next day after that, we, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia for he was hastening to be at Pentecost, if possible, on the day of, or excuse me, hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But... I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now... I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. 
In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember of the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Continue on in chapter 21. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Potara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned. And when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Let's pray. God, this is a lengthy passage of Scripture. Um, there, is, there is lots that we could talk about. Um, there is lots that we could say. And I just pray that your Holy Spirit right now would, would guide me um, and would open up not only my heart and my mind to your truth, but would open up all of our hearts and minds this morning as we consider the, the words of the Apostle Paul to his, his precious friends and, and family um, through the blood of Jesus, his brothers and sisters in Christ. Would you prepare our hearts to receive your word this morning? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's lot, there is lots of good stuff in this passage of Scripture. Um, obviously, I'd love to talk about not falling asleep in church or you'll die. Um, we can talk about that. Uh, you know, there's, there's good stuff about how they worshiped on the Lord's Day, which is a reference to the Christians gathering together to worship on Sunday. It's, a, it's an example of that we've continued on for, for 2,000 years. Um, there's talk in here of prophecy, which is, which is pretty awesome. Um, just the work of prophecy in the New Testament church. And, and uh, if you guys want to read some things about that, um, Wayne Grudem has some excellent stuff, both in his systematic theology um, book. There's a particular chapter on prophecy, or there's actually even a whole book on prophecy and, and, um, and its use for, for the church. Um, 
Lots of good stuff. But, but I think the biggest context that we're talking about and that we see throughout this, this large section of Scripture is this, that Paul is saying goodbye. Um, verse 1 of chapter 20, what does he do? It says he gathers his disciples together, and after encouraging them, he, he says farewell. Um, later on in Troas, we just, we just read, um, you know, it says that Paul talked to them through the night. Um, he wants to discuss with them his, la- his, his last words that he wants to share. And then we read in, in, where he's in Tyre um, in chapter 21. And he spent seven days with the disciples. And at the end, he kneels down with, with all the church, with the men and the women and the children. And he prays with them. And then he says farewell to them. And then Caesarea, we see that again where he's, he's being hugged. And he's exchanging kisses with the people that he loves. And they're saying, don't go. But, but he says, I've, I've got to go. I know this is, this is the path that God has for me. And, and so he says goodbye to them as well, ready even to die. Uh, and then smack dab in the middle, which is what we're going to look at primarily this morning, is, is Paul's words to the Ephesian elders. Um, if you remember last week, you know, we, we were studying the work of the gospel in Ephesus uh, and how Paul would proclaim the gospel and, and people became uh, God worshipers, one true God worshipers from, from idol worshipers and how, how some Jews as well came to faith in Jesus Christ and believed that he was the Messiah. And then, then Paul ministered there for almost three years um, teaching and proclaiming the gospel and, and spending time, as he said, from not only in public, but also from house to house ministering to these people at Ephesus. And he loved these people. Uh, and in particular, he really poured into the elders, into the leaders, and said, I'm entrusting the leadership of the church to you when I go away. And so he loved these, these guys so dearly that he called them down from, from Ephesus to Miletus on the shore. And, and so you can just picture this. He's on the beach and, and he's, he's just having these last words with these precious people. And he's, he's wanting to give them some very important words. And if you could summarize the, the big overarching theme of all of these words, it would be this. What is gospel success? You know, when a leader stands before God, what are the key characteristics of this leader that God would look at to determine whether he would say, well done, good and faithful servant. We have a lot, of, a lot of characteristics that we see in this passage, but I think three really stick out the most about the key characteristics for gospel success. Uh, and it's these. Gospel success involves, number one, humble serving. Um, number two, it involves bold teaching. And then number three, it involves faithful persevering. And while these words are directed towards the leaders at Ephesus, um, they certainly can apply to all of us this morning. And so let's listen in. First, gospel success involves humble serving. You know, the first thing that Paul commends here in, at, the, at the beginning of his, of his time with, with these Ephesian elders, he says, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. And so Paul holds out his own example and he says, guys, gospel success begins with the people of God humbly serving, putting, putting, putting other people's needs before their own. But here's what's interesting. Paul, um, Paul says first, who does he direct his service to? It's not to people. It's first directed towards serving the Lord. His, his, he has a, he has his first orientation is Godward. It's vertical. He says, 
I want to serve the Lord with, with all of me. I want to recognize, I recognize that Jesus saved me, that he rescued me on the, on the road to Damascus, that he gave me sight when I was blind to my sin and blind to my need for the Savior. And out of that, that love for Jesus, he says, Jesus, I want to serve you. He calls himself a bondservant or a slave 17 times in his letters because he's so committed to serving Jesus as Jesus has served him. But as, um, as we know, the, the gospel not only fuels his service to God, how is it expressed? It's, it's expressed through serving others. Because of God's mercy that's been extended to Paul, Paul was filled with gratitude, and, and he wanted to humbly serve mercy and, and display mercy to those whom he loved. This is why he stayed up all night encouraging the disciples. He gave up sleep because he loved the people the way Jesus loved him. This is why Paul worked as a tent maker in, in, many, in many places rather than arriving in a new city and, and asking for money. Even though he, was, he, he, was, he could rightfully ask for that because he's a minister of the gospel, he knew that there were all these other traveling ministers um, not ministers of the gospel, though. They were these, these traveling teachers, and they would steal people's money, and they would give them just empty philosophies and empty wisdom. And, and so Paul said, no, I want the gospel to be received to you freely. I don't want to confuse you and you to think that, that you pay in order to get Jesus. No, Jesus plus nothing is, is everything. You, just, you trust in Jesus, and you receive Jesus freely. And so he put aside his right to receive silver and gold and apparel because he loved his disciples, loved the people that, um, that he was ministering to. He wanted to serve them humbly. In verse 35, he says that he, he loved to serve the poor um, and to help the weak. Again, humble serving. So, and, then, and we just see he's, he's filled with tears and hugs and kisses. He cared for the people. Jesus had, had so changed his heart because of his service towards Paul that Paul couldn't help but serve other people in the same way. And so, Four Oaks, if we truly believe the gospel, then we will humbly serve others. Because God has graciously treated us so kindly and humbly, putting our needs before his, his, um, his right to be worshipped and adored in heaven, coming and humbling himself here on earth. Because of that, we should be filled with with gratitude in our hearts, and then it compels us not only to serve him, but to serve others around us. This is the way Paul Tripp puts it. Um, he says, Humility is the soil in which mercy for others grows. Gratitude for mercy given is what motivates mercy extended. And so Paul, the Apostle Paul, he is, he is he's filled with, with love for the Lord, and he's, he's humbly coming before the Lord saying, I, I have nothing, but you've given me everything. And because of that, I want to humbly serve others. I want to put their needs before my own. That's what, that's what humility does, is it, it is extends then mercy towards others. And this is gospel success. This is it. This is what Paul has commended us to. When the gospel has so gripped our hearts, it leads us to humbly say, thank you, God, and then out of that gratitude, humbly serve others and put their needs before our own. But you know, my question for you and for me is, do we serve in this way? Are we so rooted in the gospel and so 
captured by Jesus' love for us that we serve others in the way that he serves us. Um, you know, when I think of humble serving, uh, one of the people that comes to mind is actually my, my grandfather. My, my parents are actually here this morning. Um, and and when, I, when I think about uh, his example, um, he is a, he's an example of humble serving. Uh, actually, he passed away a couple of years ago, and we had the opportunity to, to hear many stories at his funeral. And, uh, you know, last words are important that we tell other people, but also last words are important that they tell about us at a funeral. And, and these last words really commended my grandfather. You know, he, was, um, he was a man who came to faith in Christ in the uh, when he was in his mid-20s, and you know, God led him to serve at a Bible campground. Uh, to serve humbly there, take care of the grounds, take care of the counselors and the campers and put other people's needs before his own. And, and then as he had opportunity, he would also preach in rural churches. Um, and, and then in addition to that, because uh, that didn't pay all the bills, uh, he also would work um, first in a factory and then he became a carpenter. And he was so known for his good work uh, that many people asked him for help. Uh, to build houses and that sort of thing. But, but because he loved people and because he loved Jesus, uh, he actually was also known as a person who would give deep discounts um, because he didn't want any, anyone who couldn't afford it to be able to pay for the work that he had done, even though he did such great work. But the, probably the, the story that sticks out to me the most, actually, when I was at his funeral, was there was a woman who came up to me, and uh, um, she shared with me the fact that when, when, she, was, when she was young, her, her dad passed away. Um, and she lived down the street from, from where my, my grandparents lived and, and their four kids lived. And, uh, and she, she, shared, she shared that, um, her, that my grandfather reached out to her and cared for her and even took her on daddy-daughter dances. Um, and, and what's interesting is that he never, he never even talked about that with his own family. Um, and so my mom didn't even, didn't even know about all the things that he had done. Uh, and this is what she said. I just wrote this down because I wanted to capture what she said. She said, you don't understand how much of a godly man your grandfather was. He loved me. He cared for me. He humbly served me. And when I thought all was lost, he reminded me of God's love and faithfulness. And that had such a profound effect on her, his focus on gospel success being rooted in, in humbly serving others, that, that now she is humbly serving my grandfather, who, who lives on, I mean, my grandmother who lives on her own and will take her on errands and just sit and talk with her. Um, because, because of the example of gospel success uh, that my grandfather exuded. Guys, our culture, it doesn't, um, it doesn't commend humble service, you know, especially in, in leadership. If you want to grow uh, and you want to you put yourself on the top of the totem pole, um, it's always about putting other, other people last and yourself first. Our flesh cries out for honor. Uh, it cries out for wanting to be recognized. But God calls us to a different sort of success that comes in following Christ's example and Paul's example to humbly serve others. And here's the, here's the cool thing. Here's the promise. Um, 1 Peter 5, 5 through 6 says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. This is why we serve. Um, God reward those who humbly serve him by humbling serving others. And so this morning, here's a couple of, of quick application questions for us. The first question is this. Do you understand the gospel? Do you understand that when you come before God, you don't come bringing anything to him? 
You come receiving from Jesus that he served you, that he gave his life for you. Do you receive that gospel? Do you believe in that gospel? And if so, then the second question is this. How are you and I, how are we serving others the way Jesus serves us? Is there a way that we can grow in our humble service towards others this morning? So the first component of gospel success is humble serving. Secondly, gospel success involves bold teaching. Uh, Paul commended the Ephesian elders and really all the people that he interacted with on this farewell tour to, to, to the word of God. Um, verse 2 uh, of chapter 20, it says that Paul went through the regions and gave them much encouragement. And we know that that was from the scriptures. Uh, verse 7, we read earlier how, how what he do? He taught the word all night long because he wanted to commend them to the word of God and how it applied to their lives. And then um, recounting his time with the Ephesian elders in verse 20, he says, I didn't shrink back from declaring to you the whole fam- or excuse me, the whole counsel of God. And then verse 27, what does he say? He says um, that he... Uh, that he did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel, I heard that one, <laughs> from declaring the whole counsel of God. And then, and then again in verse 31, he says, um, for three years I didn't cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And so Paul was committed to teaching the word boldly. But the question is why? I mean, why was the, why was the word of God so important to him? And I think we can zero in on the reasons in verse 32. Let's look there. It says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So Paul tells us three things about the word of God here. First is he says it's a word of grace. Are you a sinner? God has grace for you and for me. He loves us. Are you tired? Well, God's Grace is sufficient for our weaknesses. Are you and I, are we lacking power and, and courage to make bold decisions? Well, God says, I'll be with you. I'll give you the courage. You don't need to be afraid. You can, you can trust in me. Are you struggling through trials? God speaks a word of grace to you, that he loves you, and that he will use all things together for your good. We need words of grace, don't we? <laughs> We, we really need to not only receive those words of grace, but then declare those words of grace to others as well. The word is a word of grace because God is a God of grace, and he speaks to you and to me through this book. I mean, this is an amazing book. It's filled with, with grace, and God wants to commend us to himself when he says, I'm a God of, of grace. I'm gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And what is the result of the word of grace? Well, Paul tells us that the word, God's word, builds us up. Um, John Piper puts it this way. He says, the word of grace is a builder. It builds a useful structure out of a life of ruins. It builds design out of a life of confusion. It builds security out of fear and anxiety. It builds strength out of weakness. It builds permanence and stability out of, un- out of wavering uncertainty. It builds beauty out of ugliness. The word of God's grace is a master builder. The Greek word here is, 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 a, is a word of, about building up a structure. And so what God does, he takes, takes our feeble lives, he takes, takes all the sin, all the yuck, all the weakness, all the difficulties, 
and he begins to build us up in his word. He begins to speak a better word to us whenever the lies of the enemy would come and seek to assault us. He says, no, I love you. I, you are no longer condemned. You are accepted. You're in my sight. You know, when, when we go through hard times, when we go through trials, God's word speaks to us that, that he's using all things together for good, and that if he was willing to give up his own son, then he will graciously give us all the other things that we need. God's word builds us up in hard times uh, so that we can be able to endure the storms of life. What, is, what does Jesus say? He says, I'm the rock. And, uh, and, Jesus, and Peter commends, um, he says, Jesus, you're the, you're the rock. You're the, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, upon this rock, I'll build my church. And, and so all of the scriptures are pointing us to Jesus. And, and as a result, Jesus and, and his word become our foundation. They're what builds us up. So the word of grace, the word of God is a, is a word of grace. It's also what builds us up. And the last thing we see here in verse 32 is it, what does it say? It says it gives us an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And so when we put our, our faith in Jesus, he sanctifies us. He makes us holy. He declares us righteous. Jesus' righteousness has now been accredited to our accounts. Even though we're sin, God doesn't see our sin. He sees Jesus' holiness. He sees his righteousness, and he sets us apart for good things. And as a result, all the things that are promised to Jesus, we now become co-heirs with that. All those same things are promised to us. We get to inherit eternal life. We get to, to fellowship with God forever. We get to have a home in heaven where there's no more sorrow or pain or, or difficulty, where all that we are made for is fulfilled perfectly and completely in heaven. We are an inheritor of all these good things because of Jesus. And here's what's the really interesting thing about how Paul commends us to the word of God. Um, it's interesting. He, he definitely commends the Ephesians to teach the word of God. But here in this verse, Paul, Paul says, hey, don't just boldly teach the gospel to others, um, to both believers and then also to unbelievers, but t- begin by, by teaching the gospel boldly to yourself. Because there's so many voices that I know f- when I go through hard times, there's so many voices that tell me lies. And, and Charles Spurgeon says that we are to speak the word of God to ourselves. That needs to be the loudest voice that we hear is the voice of the gospel. And where does that come from? It comes from his word. Here's just some promises really quick from Psalm 19. This describes uh, David's experience with God's word. And I'll just read these to you real quick. You can follow on the screen if you like. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Folks, we want to be a people of the word. Um, it's the reason why we, we, we preach the word on Sunday mornings. It's the reason why we, we commend uh, one another to spend time in the word during the week. Um, because God's word, what does it say? It says it revives it makes us wise. It, it rejoices our heart. 
It enlightens us. It's, it's sweeter than honey and more valuable than gold. It warns. It promises great reward. All of these things are found in God's word. And, and Paul, he says, if you want to have gospel success, if you want to find um, Jesus saying, well done, good and faithful servant, then, then, then you and I, we need to receive the scriptures ourselves. And then we need to boldly teach and encourage the scriptures to one another. And then we need to finally proclaim the scriptures to the lost and dying world. Paul's last words here commend us to the word of grace. So gospel success, it, it involves... Um, it involves living a, a life of, of humble service. It also involves uh, bold teaching. And then finally, it involves faithful persevering. Paul was committed to following Jesus no matter the cost. Um, he endured much affliction and, and trials during his ministry, uh, but he was committed to faithful persevering to the end. And this is captured really well in verse 24. What does he say? He says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. See, Paul understood that the, the idea of gospel success is, is being faithful to the end, no matter what the cost. In his eyes, faithfulness was even better than life itself. He so valued Jesus that anything else, it didn't really matter to him. And here um, in, this, in this same farewell address, he, he tells the Ephesian elders, he says, guys, watch out. There's going to be wolves who are going to come in, and, and you're going to go through hardship. You're going to go through difficulty, and I want you to, to be faithful to the end, to not give up, to, to, call, uh, to fulfill your calling, to protect and to provide and to care for and to lead the flock of God, to not leave any sheep behind. And this call is costly, but I want you to endure. I want you to faithfully persevere. And guys, I just want to tell you real quick, um, uh, here at Four Oaks, we have an amazing group of elders. We really do. Um, they take this calling very seriously. Uh, they, they really, um, they pray for you. Um, they're committed to your well-being. They serve humbly. They, they teach the word boldly. They're, they're persevering faithfully. Uh, and, and they have been a, a tremendous example uh, to me of gospel success, and, uh, and I know that they've been that to many of you as well. Uh, but here's, here's the thing, that, that this, gospel, this call to gospel faithfulness is, is not just for the elders, it's not just for our elders, but it's for really for all of us. We're all called to faithful persevering. Now Paul, you know, he was called to faithfully persevering as a missionary and, and even going to death for the sake of the gospel. Um, obviously these Ephesian elders, they were called to persevere in, in their call to, to fight against the wolves. Um, but all of us are, are called to be faithful to the Lord in whatever context we're in. And so whether it's just being, it's being, a, it's being a faithful person in the workplace and, and living out the gospel in the midst of a, of a broken and, and perverse world, or it's, it's faithfully loving your, your husband or your wife to the end, <laughs> especially when there's times of sin, especially when there's times of difficulty and faithfully caring for them and loving them, or to faithfully live as a student in FSU or, or in your schooling to, to be faithful, to, to study hard and to work hard and then to get a job, you know, and to be faithful in that way. Um, you know, one, one example, I think, of faithfulness that really struck me, actually, Julie and I were on a date last night, 
And um, we ran into this guy at, at uh, Village Inn um, because we were getting pie on pie day. Yes. Did you guys do this? Anybody get pies on pie day? Come on. No? I, well, I did. We had some peanut butter and chocolate pie. And you guys are getting hungry right now. Um, so we ran into this guy, and, and he, he, he went to Village Inn. Apparently, he went there all the time. And then he started telling a little bit of his story, unpacking it a little bit. Come to find out, um, he, he developed this routine. He said, yeah, I used to, uh, every afternoon, uh, every day I would go and pick up uh, key lime pie, a slice of key lime pie, and I would bring it to my, to my wife, uh, who had Alzheimer's. And, uh, I would, and eventually, I, guess, I don't know if he, she was at home all the time, uh, or in the nursing home all the time, but eventually he started bringing it to her nursing home, and they would always enjoy key lime pie together every single day. And he, and, he, and, and he said he did that for 14 years. Every day, key lime pie, picking it up, bringing it to her, faithful to the call that God had given to him. And so, guys, I don't, I don't know what, uh, what faithfulness might look for, for you like in this season or in another season, but God calls us to be faithful to the end, to persevere, to run the course, to run the race with endurance no matter the cost. And this is hard sometimes. It really is. And here's what's even more difficult is um, not only is it hard because of the cost, but it's also hard because in many ways, the gospel success, we don't see fruitfulness right away. Um, God calls us to be faithful, but then to entrust the fruitfulness to him. And we see that with, with Paul. What does, he, what does he do in verse 36, right at the end? As he's, as he's spoken all these words to the Ephesian elders, then what does it say? He says, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And so what does he do? At the end of these words, then he kneels down with them and he prays. And he just says, God, I, I'm faithful. I, I want to be faithful to the call that, that you have called me to. And I don't know, what the, I don't know what the, what's going to happen next in my life. I don't know what's going to happen next in the Ephesian elders' lives. All I know is that, that I'm called to be faithful and I'm to entrust you with the results. And guys, um, we are called to be faithful and to leave the fruitfulness up to God. And remember Paul's ministry trajectory here. Like after this, he pretty much like goes to prison a lot. And many of you would say, well, that wasn't very fruitful. Um, but, but what do we have in the Word? We have tons of fruitfulness, right? All of the letters that Paul wrote from prison. He was just faithful wherever God put him, and he entrusted God with the fruitfulness. But here's one other thing I just want to remind you guys of. Uh, how could Paul do this? You know, Paul didn't just persevere through like a try-harder, do-better sort of um, attitude. He didn't, peer, uh, di- he didn't persevere because of some sort of determination. You know, just, I'm going to do, do better. I'm going to work hard. No, his primary emphasis of persevering was because of the one who persevered for him. The one who endured trials, who experienced abandonment, who bore our sins, and who faithfully persevered all the way to the end. See, we endure, and Paul endured, not because of some strength that we have on our own, but because we see Jesus at the finish line. We see Jesus who persevered and he endured to the end. We see Jesus who, who laid down his rights and now is exalted in heaven and he's, he's awaiting us. 
He's going to reward us as we are faithful to him. Jesus rewards all those who are faithful to the end. See, Paul, he served humbly, he taught boldly, and then he faithfully persevered no matter the cost and no matter the results in trusting everything to his faithful and gracious master. This is gospel success. This is it. Humble serving, bold teaching, and faithful persevering all the way to the end. Let me close with a, with a story that I heard recently. And uh, you know, I hope this might be an encouragement to you of entrusting God with the results. Um, in the early 1900s, William Leslie came to faith in Christ, and uh, he wanted to pursue the gospel success that we're talking about. And so after becoming a doctor, uh, in 1912, he, he took his wife, and, and he really felt called to be faithful to the Lord in a very hard-to-reach place of the world. Um, he went to a remote corner of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And Dr. Leslie would, would cross the Quilu River once a year from, from his station in Vanga. And he would spend a month traveling through the jungle, spending time with these different villages. Uh, and he was carried by servants in like a sedan chair, which is, sounds pretty awesome. Um, but uh, he would serve the Yansi people as he was serving. He would, he would care for their medical needs. He would teach the Bible to the adults. He would, he would teach the kids how to read and to write. And, and he would talk about the importance of education. And in fact, he even helped to establish um, a, uh, an educational system in these villages. But here's the interesting thing. He never saw any gospel fruit. For 17 years, he did this. And in 1929, after 17 years of ministry, Dr. Leslie had a relational falling out with some of the tribal leaders, and he was actually asked not to go back. And so he returned to the U.S. a, a very discouraged man. Um, he believed that he had failed to make an impact for Christ. Yes, he had served humbly, he had taught boldly, and he persevered faithfully, but, but he, was really, he was really lost. He was discouraged, and he was saying, God, I... I did all that I could. And, and after nine years, um, even though he was able to reconcile apparently with these tribal leaders before he died, he didn't see any results. But here's the interesting thing. In 2010, 80 years later, a missionary team led by Eric Ramsey, uh, they made a shocking and sensational discovery. Using a, a small prop plane, they, they flew from Kinhasa to Vanga, uh, where, where Dr. Leslie was stationed at the, you know, a long time earlier. And then they hiked a mile to the Quilu River, and then they used um, dugout canoes to cross the, the half-mile-wide expanse, and then they hiked with backpacks another 10 miles into the jungle before they reached the first village of the Yansi people. And uh, based on his previous research, he didn't know anything about Dr. Leslie at the time, but he, he did gather that the Yansi people might have been exposed to Jesus at some point, but they probably didn't understand anything about him. Uh, but when they arrived, they were unprepared for what they would find. The team, when they arrived, found a network of reproducing churches hidden like glittering diamonds in the dense jungle across the Quilu River from Vanga, where Dr. Leslie was stationed. This is what Ramsey reported. He said, when we got in there, uh, we found a network of reproducing churches throughout the jungle. Each of the eight villages had its own church and even a gospel choir. They wrote their own songs and would have sing-offs from village to village. 
That'd be awesome, like Nick Lachey, sing off. All right, so uh, Ramsey and his team even found a 1,000-seat stone cathedral in one of the villages. He learned that this church got so crowded in the 1980s with many walking miles to attend that a church planting movement began in the surrounding villages until there were, you know, churches in all the villages. Uh, and it took some digging for Ramsey to uncover, like, how this happened, because he didn't know anything about Dr. Leslie when he arrived. And the tribal people only knew this, this, this guy's one name. They just knew Leslie. They didn't know if it was his first name or his last name. They had just heard of this man named Leslie, and they knew that he was a follower of Jesus, that he was based in Vang in the early 1900s, and that was it. That's all they really knew. And they knew that for 17 years or, so, or somewhere thereabouts, he had, he had ministered, but, but during that time, there was no fruit. But God used those faithful labors now to cause much fruit. And so Ramsey concluded with this. He said, Dr. Leslie's goal was to spread Christianity. He felt like he was there for 17 years, and he never really made a big impact. But the legacy he left is huge. Guys, we, we, not all of us, in fact, most of us are probably not called to go to a remote jungle to share the gospel, but we are all called to be faithful in whatever context we're in. And so my question for you and really for me too is what sort of legacy do we want to leave? If we were to have some last words that we wanted to commend to people after us, some important words, what would we want to say about what is really important in life? My hope for you and, and for me is this, that we would, we would pursue gospel success, that we would be committed to humble serving, putting other people's needs before our own. Uh, we would be committed to bold teaching, pointing people to God's word. And, and, and then finally, we would be committed to faithful persevering, following Jesus all the way to the end and enjoying Jesus saying to us at the very end, well done, good and faithful servant. May God do that by his grace and for his glory. Let's pray.